Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. So many tropical storms and hurricanes hit Louisiana's Isle de Jean Charles that Native residents talk about them almost like they're family members, albeit unwelcome ones. Who broke that window? Rita? Gustav? It wasn't Katrina or Ike. Rising sea levels and the consequences that follow groundwater salinization, disappearing wetlands, and decimated wildlife and fishing are just so familiar there. Louisiana is just one of the dozens of places that environmental reporter Elizabeth Rush writes about in her new book, Rising, Dispatches from the New American Shore. The options for the people and animals in these places is stark, retreat or die. Those are the options we generally associate with far-off islands like Fuji or Kiribati. But dramatic, life-changing climate change is happening right now in our own backyards. Elizabeth Rush joins us in the studio to tell the stories of those who were hit first. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So there are a lot of books about the changing environment out there. What made you want to write this one, Rising? And, and how did you want to tell the story differently? I think I first became really aware of sea level rise when I was sent by Le Monde Diplomatique to write a story on the India-Bangladesh border, which is the longest border fence in the world. I spent about six weeks reporting that. And the three weeks that I spent in Bangladesh were really eye-opening because pretty much everyone I met said, you know, the fence isn't really a problem. Like, we can bribe our way through. There are, you know, huge cattle smuggling operations that move through the fence, through holes in the fence at night under the cover of darkness. What's profoundly dismantling our communities is saline inundation and the way that it's leading to crop failure. So I saw it. Like, I saw sea level rise it was already leading to dislocation and displacement and land loss and the fracturing of communities. And I thought, you know what, I do want to write about this. I, I've always wanted to be an environmental writer. And this felt like a very, in a sort of twisted way, like fertile soil in which to write about humans and their relationship to the environment. But I didn't want to write about it 
in Bangladesh because that started to feel already like a kind of climate change cliche. And I was like, I'm sure there are places in the United States that this is happening. Why don't I go in search of them? And so that's what I did for five years. I went looking <laughs> for places um, in the U.S. that were experiencing the early impacts of sea level rise. Where did the idea for rising come about then? Where did the shift come into doing this particular format of a book where you've got half lyric essays and then you have these testimonies interspersed? So the testimonies were a really organic evolution. I was working at the College of Staten Island. It was my first teaching job. And I started reporting on these right-leaning, climate-change-denying working-class communities along the Staten Island shore that were coming together in the wake of Hurricane Sandy to ask that their homes be purchased by the state and bulldozed and the land itself allowed to return to nature um, to act as sort of a buffering wetland in the storms that would come. And I was really fascinated and surprised to see this response on the ground and then wanted to know a lot more about how it was that this group of people came to ask for what are some pretty radical demands. Managed retreat is often considered a four-letter word in policy discussions around climate change adaptation. So I spent, you know, two years going out to these communities. My my time and level of engagement with them was really profound. And about six or seven months into that process, I was invited to a celebration of life of a man who perished in Hurricane Sandy. Um, his name was Leonard Montalto. And I had been working with and spending a lot of time with his sister, Patty. When I was at this celebration of his life in Patty's house, his daughter, Nicole, pulled me aside and was like, you're writing a book. That's really different. I don't usually talk to reporters, but I want to tell you my Hurricane Sandy story. And she pulled me into a room and sat me down and closed the door and just spent the next two hours essentially describing the storm and her search for her father in the days after the storm and the discovery of his body in the basement of the home that she grew up in. and. I recorded the entire interview and went home and transcribed it and really felt that there was nothing I could do as a writer that would tell that story better, that I, I could edit out parts of the story and sort of make it a tighter narrative, but that I really had no business essentially inserting a narrative I, a narrative first person that told my story of encountering this woman alongside her story, which is to say I didn't really know what to do with that. And then about six months later, um, two people at the same time, roughly, put this book, Voices from Chernobyl, in front of me by Svetlana Alexievich. And she is Belarusian and spent 10 years interviewing um, the folks who lived in and returned to the land around the Chernobyl power plant. And... That book is written entirely in the voices of those people. So she did these long extended interviews, transcribed the interviews, edited out big chunks of them. And I think of that book as like a kind of polyphonic chorus that tells the story of this incredible environmental catastrophe, but is also about like the fall of the Soviet Union. And I hadn't realized until that moment that I could even do that, that I could just put in these long monologues of other people's voices. 
And as soon as I read that book, it sort of clicked. I thought back to the Nicole Montalto interview and was like, right, I have to um, include the voices of folks who are living through periods of tremendous change. Because a lot of them, when I would speak to them, would also very much express that they feel alone in this condition, um, that there's no one else like them. And my research started to show me that, in fact, a lot of people are occupying these spaces and it might be useful to hear from them. Well, it's interesting because um, your last book is about people in Yangon whose homes are going to be auctioned off from under them by the junta. And that was a couple of years ago. And in Rising, you're talking to people who are also going to lose their homes or are, have already lost their homes to environmental change. It's a curious parallel. Yeah, I didn't realize that I was writing a similar book until, I don't know, a couple, like two or three years into the process. And that helped me understand that one thing that I'm really obsessed with is just our idea of home and where that comes from and what parts of it can change and how those definitions as they change, change us. A parallel between the folks in Myanmar and those living in the U.S. is that for many of them, they started to come around to the idea that while they've invested a lot and spent a lot of time in a particular house, um, one of the things that they really want to maintain through the transition is a sense of their community. So in Staten Island, something that I found really fascinating was that the city decided to offer them a 5% bonus if they stayed within the five boroughs because they didn't want to lose the property taxes. And a lot of folks took that bonus, relocated one mile, two miles up and in from their coastal community, and in many ways have stayed in touch with a lot of the folks that they grew up alongside that made Oakwood Oakwood. So even though their homes might not be there anymore, some of the community certainly remains. Wow. People have a lot of stories about their homes, you know, it's something that I think everybody can talk about, but it can also be a very fraught territory and a very emotional territory. So what is your process like for basically inviting yourself into these people's lives? I mean, hopefully you're invited in, but, you know, it just, it seems kind of daunting. So it is a little bit like inviting myself into their lives and... In the most basic sense, it's one of those places where I think um, my gender can be a little bit useful. I don't immediately present as a physical threat. I'm 5'4 and, you know, a 34-year-old woman. I also, sort of building off of that idea, I always know that if I'm asking someone to talk to me about a set of circumstances that makes them tremendously vulnerable, I had better go into that conversation fairly unarmed. So for me, that means um, walking instead of driving in a rental car or riding a bike um, to show up in a neighborhood and sort of experience it on the ground to spend a lot of time there, you know. Almost all of the pieces in Rising are the result of, if not years of engagement, um, as was the case in Staten Island, you know, at least a month. And then finally, you know, in those initial conversations, I found this was particularly the case on the Isle de Jean Charles, which has been written about a fair amount, that I wanted to enter into them as a human being and less as sort of 
a journalist from away. So that might mean, you know, showing up at the local like marina and bar and hanging out a little bit, but also talking to them, having a conversation about people or places in my life that I've loved and left. And thinking of this as like an exchange amongst people that are really trying to figure out what does it mean to give up something that defines you by making myself sort of emotionally vulnerable in that conversation. It becomes a two-way street and it becomes reciprocal. Another last little tiny bit of advice I would offer is just that I report from Republican communities and Democratic communities and indigenous communities and communities of color. And my instinct was always to like check my discourse at the door. Climate change as a term might not be the the word that feels like it maps most wholly onto their lived experience of watching the fields where they used to farm and grow okra um, become salinated and then have to lie fallow. So I would often also try to sort of let them define the terms of the conversation. So did that linguistic decision in your research sort of guide the writing of the book too? Yeah, I, I, one, wanted to write the book in such a way that it wasn't an argument that climate change is happening. We have those books. I don't think I needed to write another one of those books. Not that they're not important, but I just don't think we needed more or that I was the person to do it. And I also think they do come across occasionally sounding a bit didactic, and that can be alienating for communities that in particular, don't have a ton of political or economic or social power. So, uh, yeah, I really wanted to focus on lived experience and weave in the occasional bit of science through a resident in one of these coastal communities as being something that they've noticed. And then I go out and sort of look for the, the scientific fact behind their observations. Yeah. So, I mean, speaking of communities, there are thousands of miles of coastline in the United States and, I mean, in the world in general. And how did you narrow down your focus and decide which communities to visit? I started to realize, and this is sort of a no-brainer when you think about it, that communities that are sited alongside or on top of tidal wetlands, existent or former tidal wetlands, are the ones that are being impacted now by sea level rise. Um, that's because they exist within a sort of six-foot range of the highest high tide. So it's land that, even before seas were rising, periodically flooded. And then I think to really look at places that weren't going to get um, super innovative infrastructure designs to save them. So after Hurricane Sandy, the Rockefeller Foundation ran something called the Rebuild by Design Competition. And the team that won, you know, came up with this really amazing landscape architectural design to wrap the southern tip of Manhattan in, like, living dunes and amphitheaters that can double as, like, skate parks and water retention sites. And I don't think any of those things are bad ideas in and of themselves, but it's really important to remember that New York City has 520 miles of coastline, and the Big U takes care of, like, five miles of it. So I really wanted to seek out places that weren't going to get things like the Big U. And that ended up being primarily lower-income communities of color. And there's a whole history, it turns out, as to how 
some of our most vulnerable social communities ended up living atop some of the most vulnerable land. Why do vulnerable communities end up in ecologically vulnerable places? So it's a long story, but there's sort of a first wave of movement towards tidal wetlands in post-contact history. And that is largely of indigenous communities fleeing colonial violence, as well as maroon communities um, seeking out wetlands as places of refuge. On top of that, you also have to remember that tidal wetlands weren't even considered land until 1850. So they're really hard to base property boundaries around because Half of the day, some of the land is submerged under the ocean, and half of the day it isn't. That's sort of the tidal cycle. So they weren't considered fit spaces to transform into private property until this thing called the Swamp Lands Act, which essentially transferred all wetlands in the U.S., which were considered sort of federal property and quasi-commons, to states. And the states then had the right to sell them to developers. That's how we get bonkers development in Florida. Um, half over half of the state of Florida was wetland that was then transformed into private property by the Swamp Lands Act. And I think of it as, um, in many cases, a transference of indigenous land to private property owners that then sort of secures the financial future of the state and alienates indigenous people from the lands where their lives have taken place and also excludes them from the potential of sort of a sound financial future. It's a crazy history. Yeah, it really is. Um, there's no way to, I guess, unpave a swamp, mm-hmm. but there are other solutions. There are, you know, things that can be used to salvage these communities, even if they aren't, you know, a high-tech big U a la New York. Mm -hmm. So what do you see as the way forward? Something that we have to begin to take seriously is the idea of managed retreat. I'm not talking about, you know, retreat from every single coastal community, but being thoughtful. Is this community sited atop land that's within six feet of the high tide mark? Is it developed on top of or alongside former tidal wetlands? Those are areas that even if we were to stop producing CO2 tomorrow, we've locked in at least a couple feet of sea level rise. So I think there are communities where whether we like it or not, we have to talk about moving up and in. Um, Who gets the funding to do that and how do we do that in a way that isn't Um, fundamentally exclusionary to those who might not have the same set of resources going into a storm. I think that that's something that we have to take really seriously right now. We do have programs in the U.S. We have one particular program that buys out flood-prone properties. And the communities that are retreating have come together at a grassroots level and are seeking out a buyout because they no longer feel safe where they're living. They see their property being devalued. That's also really key because 1,400 of our endangered and threatened species are wetlands dependent. That's over half of the endangered and threatened species in the United States. We know that wetlands can migrate up and in. And 
if we have communities built along the backside of them, that makes it really difficult for a wetland to migrate and keep pace with rising seas. So I think we need to talk about retreat and select locations, not just for humans, but also for the more than human world. When I think about retreat, everyone says, oh, we don't have enough money to move all the vulnerable communities away from risk. And I think that's only true until we decide to make it not true. So California, for instance, just passed with a 70% approval rating on a voter ballot measure that is a $12 a year parcel tax that goes for wetlands restoration in the Bay Area. And that's something that I find a lot of hope in, that now they have hundreds of millions of dollars that go towards wetlands restoration every year, and that's because of a tax that residents agreed to pay. There are some pretty startling firsthand testimonies in Elizabeth Rush's book, Rising, and we've got links to go beyond the episode on our show page, as well as some original photographs from the book. We'll see you next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.